Good morning, all. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the January 31st, 2023 edition of Ask Our Leader. Lots happening around the UC Irvine campus from forging ahead, researching climate change, to exhibiting provocative contemporary art. In the first segment, Earth System scientist Professor Keith Moore and researcher Yi Liu will talk about their deeply concerning findings on climate change's impact on ocean currents, recently published in Nature Climate Change. And in the second segment, co-curators Tina Rivers-Ryan and Paul Van Oost present their brand new installation at UCI's Beale Center for Art and Technology. It's called Difference Machines, Technology and Identity in Contemporary Art. And the exhibit, for all to go there at least once, maybe many times, that'll be there through April 29th. Details are on the website archive of the show, askleader.com. Be right back. Welcome back to the show. My first guests are Earth System Scientist Professor Keith Moore and researcher Yi Lu to talk about their deeply concerning findings on climate change's impacts on ocean currents. It's published in Nature Climate Change. Keith Moore is a UCI oceanographer who, along with his research team, investigates the productivity of our oceans. His interests include the role of marine biota in global biogeochemical cycles and Earth's climate system. He focuses on how marine phytoplankton and other ocean biota influence the cycling of key elements in the oceans and on the biogeochemical links between the ocean, atmosphere, and land through atmospheric transport and riverine runoff. His team uses particular computer modeling of marine ecosystem dynamics and biogeochemical cycles and analyzes satellite remote sensing data of ocean physical and biological properties. My other guest is Yi Liu, currently a PhD candidate at UCI's Department of Earth System Science. Her interests are in understanding the impact of climate change on the ocean, which led her to move to the U.S., in the fall of 2018 to continue her PhD studies. Her current research focuses on the role of ocean circulation on the global carbon cycle and how it relates to climate change. Yi completed her undergraduate degree in environmental science from the Ocean University of China and her master's degree in physical oceanography from the South China Sea Institute of Oceanology, Chinese Academy of Sciences. The carbon parts per million at her birth were 357, and mine were at 313.2, and we'll put Keith somewhere in between. It's sad as it is contemptible. Wouldn't say horrific because I don't want to paralyze everybody. Both he and Keith come to us from their lab in their office at UC Irvine. Welcome to Ask Leader, Yi Lu, and welcome back, Keith Moore. Thank you. Thank you. Well, first, if you two would 
explain what this phenomenon is that you published in your studies, the meridional overturning circulation. You'll call it MOC later on, but what it is, what its functions are, both as a carbon sink and a means of moving nutrients around to feed all the levels of the food chain. And if you could explain to us, like we're all third graders, so we're going to remember this forever. <laughs> sure. So this meridional overturning circulation, what we're really talking about is the, the deep circulation in the ocean, the circulation that extends all the way to the seafloor. But that deep circulation is connected to the surface by these overturning currents. So there's actually two of these overturning currents. One starts in the North Atlantic, where water gets very dense as it cools off in the winter and it sinks. That's the North Atlantic deep water, and that's part of what's called the AMOC overturning in the Atlantic. The other deep overturning starts near Antarctica, quite close to the continent of Antarctica. You also form very dense waters that sink down all the way to the bottom of the ocean. So those are the two main places where you're, you're forming deep waters. And then as part of this overturning circulation, eventually, maybe a thousand years later, those overturning waters are brought back to the surface, again in the Southern Ocean around Antarctica, but not near the coastline, more offshore in the open ocean. And so what we did is we looked at climate projections from the IPCC class climate models, you know, our state-of-the-art Earth system models or climate models, and we looked at how these two deep circulations change under a range of future warming scenarios. And what we found is that the deep circulation slows down in essentially all of the scenarios, whether we go the high-end warming or the low-end optimistic warming that we're trying to target with the Paris Climate Treaty. So the deep ocean, both these deep currents slow down with climate warming. But in the high-end warming, where we just continue to burn up fossil fuels into the future, the deeper cell, the one that starts near Antarctica, which we call SMOC, actually stops completely. It's grinding to a halt by the year 2300. And then the slowdown of these currents has important implications, as you mentioned, both for climate in terms of the ocean's ability to take up CO2 from the atmosphere, but also marine ecosystems because it affects the nutrient distributions in the oceans. So we've learned, if we're paying any attention at all, we've learned that the high warming or the more concerning trend is the one that's proving to be more accurate in all kinds of climate change modeling. So are you, both of you, keeping your eye on the more sobering of the trends, the more serious one, or are you... Uh, and, and the purpose of the lower warming trend is just to sort of let people know, well, you, you checked it out, but you really are keeping your eye on the higher warming trends. Well, the results are more worrisome with the high-end warming, but we're really hoping that the planet follows the low-end warming path. And there is still time to do that. You know, we have the next two decades are really critical for cutting our greenhouse gas emissions and making sure that we're not going that high-end worst-case scenario in terms of climate warming in the future. And so there is still time for us to change course and affect, you know, this future climate trajectory. And that's maybe the good news out of this study is that the shutdown only occurs on the high-end warming. So if we can quickly reduce our emissions, we can avoid that rather catastrophic impact of global warming in the long run. But what happens over the next few hundred years to even thousands of years will largely be determined by what happens in the next 20 years. Did you have a particular 
piece to say to that? Uh, yes, I think at least in our study, like uh, no matter we are under like high end warming scenario or we are under like more moderate warming scenarios, the slowdown always exists. But the good news like Keith just mentioned, uh, if we have like a moderate warming scenario, we still have a window to avoid the overturning circulation to, uh, fully shut down. So we still have time. But the thing is, even though we are under the most moderate warming scenario, we still have pretty strong overturning circulation slowdown. And this can already have pretty strong like reduction of the ocean ability to take up carbon from atmosphere. We have, there is still some hope to, in the next one to two decades, if we follow the moderate warming scenarios to avoid the overturning circulation fully shuts down in the future, and also to avoid the ocean's ability decline to take up carbon from atmosphere. So there is still a window period. Yeah. So if you two could humor me a little bit with this trend. So when people hear we've got two decades, it's sort of like, well, we can do nothing for the first two thirds of the two decades, and then we'll really get serious at the end of the two decades. But the trend, if you could, for radio sort of chart, I mean, it's it picks up in, with intensity as those trends, as the warming builds. I mean, isn't that a concern about how we perceive this trend? Yes, we can't wait two decades to start. Um, and the longer we wait, the harder it will be. And the, the chances of success, of successfully avoiding catastrophe in the future go down. So it is something we need to be working on now. And the Biden administration in the Inflation Reduction Act has actually put in some real real climate change money and effort that we were not doing before. And so the U.S. went from being one of the real lagging nations in trying to fight global warming to now we're in better shape than many most nations in, in terms of getting to where we need to go in our reductions. But even so, the plan in the Inflation Reduction Act, which was, I believe, for the next 10 years, it won't get us all the way where we need to be. We still need to do more, but at least we've, we've got a, a good start on it. And we're actively working the problem now, which, which we really weren't in the past in terms of the U.S. So what was, for again, I'm speaking for all third graders listening here and for myself, the earliest data, where did you start with that? And then you talked in the, your publication about there's the data at this point. And then at 2100s and then the 2300. So where did you start so we can start seeing where, where those plots began and continue to? Well, you know, for some time, it's been noted that the Atlantic overturning could slow down with climate warming. And in fact, just in the last few years, there's been several studies that show pretty strongly that that slowdown has already started. So the slowdown predicted by the climate models for the future, we're already starting to see it in the North Atlantic. And that is partly what got us interested in this and how mm -hmm. that might progress with climate change. One thing really new in this study is that we also looked at this deeper cell that begins near Antarctica, which has been largely overlooked in the past. Much more of the focus has been on the Atlantic. And it's that deeper cell actually that, that slows the most drastically and then shuts off by 2300 on the high-end warming scenarios. For those of you who've just joined us, my guests are UCI oceanographer Professor Keith Moore and Earth System Science researcher Yilu on their sobering new findings about the global circulation 
of ocean waters. And the contributing researchers include UCI's Francois Primo and Xiamen University Weilei Wang. So it's a tough sell. This is a S-E-L-L about deer uh, below the ocean surface, C-E-L-L cells, that it's an abstraction for the public to understand what this trend is. It's not a, as palpable like a lot of other climate shifts. How are you bringing that vividness of an ocean cell to public's attention? Um, well, we're doing it right now through your show. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> and this this paper. But, you know, the, over, the slowing of the circulation is linked to a lot of other climate signals that we can observe. So, part, you know, the warming of the surface ocean is part of what makes it harder to form this deep water formation in the future. And we can already see that warming of the oceans happening today in both shipboard and satellite measurements. Um, I, I, think, I think the other thing uh, we can link the deep ocean overturning circulation to the public is that even though the circulation is not that based from our eyes online, but the thing is it could also affect the marine ecosystem dynamics and this could affect the fishery yield. Uh, this is one thing that is pretty linked to the public. And the other thing is, if we focus on the AMOC, which is Atlantic Overturning Circulation, and this is strongly, this could strongly affect the climate in Europe. And also like the changes of global overturning circulation will affect the ocean's ability to take up carbon from atmosphere. This will further affect our climate warming. It will increase the temperature, increase the temperature in the planet. And it'll, if it's not sinking that, then it's also contributing. There's more in the atmosphere, more parts per million of carbon and other greenhouse gas. Yes. yes and so that's, that's right. how we can see it too. Mm -hmm. Right. So the slowdown then becomes a positive feedback for climate change. It's leaving more CO2 in the atmosphere. So the hot climate conditions are going to be more intense and they're going to last for longer than if this ocean circulation wasn't slowing down. And we can really see that the models that slow down the most, you know, take up much less CO2 by 2100 than the models that are not slowing as much. It's a difference of, you know, hundreds of petagrams of carbon. So it's a, it's a big amount of carbon that then is being left in the atmosphere to continue warming the planet. Carbon and other greenhouse gases. Right, correct. And then on oh. the nutrient side, what happens is, in, everywhere in the ocean, there's some, you know, dead and dying organisms that are sinking from the surface waters where most of the life is and where the photosynthesis happens, sinking down into the deeper ocean. And as they sink, they're decomposing. And so they release the carbon and the nutrients then in the deep ocean. And so what happens today and in the past is that, so in that way, the biology is always sort of depleting the nutrients at the surface and moving them down into the ocean, into the deeper ocean. This isn't a problem today because this deep overturning circulation we're talking about, it eventually brings those nutrients back up to the surface. But when you slow down the deep circulation, now you're not bringing the nutrients up as quickly. And so they tend to, what happens is the nutrients start to build up in the deep ocean and be depleted in the upper ocean. So that's less nitrogen and phosphorus to fuel all the marine ecosystems globally in the surface waters. There'll be less nutrients in the future to support those ecosystems. 
So you're talking then about some of the markers. Maybe you can explain more about what the markers are that you're using. And as I was preparing here, that are, make this a very intersectional work. It's biological, it's chemical and physical. Can you give us examples of, of those markers? You're already sort of alluding to them. Right. So the, the CO2 uptake from the atmosphere, you know, in the, you know, currently we are emitting a lot of CO2 each year from our fossil fuel burning and land use change. But about a quarter of what we're putting into the atmosphere, the ocean is taking up on short time scales, you know, this year. But in the long term, over hundreds of years, we expect that eventually the oceans will take up maybe 80% or more of the CO2 that we're adding to the atmosphere. But to get to that 80% reduction in the atmosphere, you need a vigorous deep ocean circulation that's bringing up old waters to the surface that haven't seen the high CO2 in the atmosphere yet. So they're able to absorb more from the atmosphere then. What happens, particularly on the high warming scenario, is the surface waters at low latitudes, they start to become saturated with CO2. So we just can't get more into the ocean. And so then the rate of ocean uptake depends on how quickly you're bringing up these old waters, which can still absorb some more CO2. And so that ends up prolonging the hot climate conditions by not taking up the CO2. In terms of the nutrients, what we'll see is the nutrients become increasingly trapped in the deep ocean is we'll see reductions in the net primary production, the total photosynthesis in surface waters, and eventually that you know, will work its way up the food chain and depress things like the potential fish catch in the ocean for humans. In an earlier study, we estimated that these processes could reduce the total fish catch in the North Atlantic by more than 50%. From the and the baseline, fifty percent from the, from today, this, from, from right, right now. Oh right. wow! Because they are already dropping. Yep, but they're kind of it's just starting to drop now, and in the long run, it could it could drop a lot as the nutrients get trapped at death, and there's less and less nutrients at the surface to support the ecosystems. And like we're seeing at the top of the food chain, some severely malnourished, large water mammals. Mm hmm. I mean, that's that's like part of the NLA. And you're talking about the temperature in on another continent, but that that right now with the the food chain, we're already seeing that with the, I mean, it, it's all the way up, but that's maybe the most dramatic mm -hmm. pre presentation of that. Yeah. So it'll it'll affect everyone because it's the base of the food chain that we're we're talking about. Well, could you both talk about a little bit maybe about your team? And whether this is a study that's getting, it's working on actually a whole lot of other teams so that we know this is a shared four fire alarm kind of a research effort or five fire alarm. I'm not sure how many alarms to ring, but I'm ringing them. Yeah. So we are, we're depending on, you know, thousands of scientists worldwide who build these climate models and then ran these future projections and then all that data becomes publicly available for anyone to download and analyze. And so Yi went through the output from 36 different Earth system models, calculating these overturning transports. And, and so, you know, one of the strengths is we're not just relying on one model here. We looked at all the models that were available from this latest round of the IPCC simulations. And we found the results of this slowdown were also very consistent across the models. They all slow down. And there's some uncertainty about, you know, how much it will slow and how quickly. But the idea that these overturnings will slow seems very solid from the results we've looked at. And you, you're, 
your experience of all of this because you you did transfer you you came to this particular program so maybe a little just a brief personal history of of that international collaboration but you chose this place to to continue to get your terminal degree here yeah so actually uh as you just introduced i did my undergrad uh, and my master's study in china and i focus on environmental science in my undergrad which is pretty a broad environmental science stuff but i did learn a little bit about the ocean modeling like the ocean environment environmental science stuff and then i would like to i focus more on the physical oceanography stuff working on some small scale uh, ocean processes and by then i noticed that i want a big picture thing to see how the earth system evolves especially like how the earth earth system processes changes under climate change so i decided to come to the us and especially the uci department of earth system science it has a really broad view of almost all components of the earth system but i still want to focus more on the ocean part so and that's how i decided to choose like kismos group to study the role of ocean circulation on the i mean like ocean biological chemistry or ocean carbon cycle because i have my background in uh, physical oceanography so i think i'm sit, uh, just standing on the boundary of physical oceanography and chemical and biological processes in the ocean and in the context of the climate change which i gain lots of support from this morse group and also from uci earth system science department well i'm curious are you considering having your career in this research in the us or is there a, a team that you joined back in china i just so i know sort of where these all these brain trusts are moving around and working Yeah so currently I'm still planning to stay in the US uh for my postdoc study and I will keep track on what I'm currently doing and keep going and study something about ocean carbon cycle so it could be following up study of this project but I could go much uh much wider go to much wider topics yes but in but staying in the US or that that remains to be seen Yeah yeah uh I plan to stay in the US to do a postdoc but doing the similar kind of like similar topics cause there are lots of unknowns. I was going to mention that our collaborator Wei Wang in China he was actually a postdoc at UCI when we started this project <laughs> and then got a job as a professor back in China. So uh you know the brain flow does go both ways I guess. <laughs> so are we going to find another current or this is like I mean yeah there's a, is there another current or is it, this is No nope, these are the don't the deep currents These are the only deep Okay I'm not right. sure that we got that okay And you know one thing missing here is the funding for this and then you know we'll we'll get to the responsible parties that really need to step up and and do their part because first is the funding for this research over the years and into the future Keith Yes, so this work was funded by the US Department of Energy, who has a fairly big climate study, climate modeling component within the Department of Energy. And that funding seems solid going into the future. Uh there's strong support there. Of course, there's also a lot of climate research funded by the National Science Foundation and NOAA and NASA, but this particular study was funded by DOE. And 
I'm going back now to how corporate entities we find out generations later completely understood the trends afoot in climate change. And so I don't know if you are, I mean, maybe that's not your job, you two, but if there's maybe a different kind of a field that's investigating climate change, that's looking at, you know, there, it, this must have been known before you guys even started working on this, the way other trends were known in the corporate sector. Well, I think the slowdown of the North Atlantic cell was known, but the other cell, that's new information, I think. No one has really looked at that in the context of these climate models and climate change. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to get the corporate world on board with reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Some companies do seem to get it and they're moving you know, faster in that direction than governments are around the world because they see what's what's coming and, and what's going to happen. But it's a, it's a tough problem. Well, I know one ally you've had, you have that I've had the privilege of interviewing and I'll bring them back again. But are you familiar with a, a corporate responsibility nonprofit called As You Sow? No, I'm not. So that might be one of the new areas for you to post your findings and that they're always talking about externalities of every part of the means of production that, you know, have these outcomes. So uh, that's something mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's on all of us to keep looking for levers so that, you know, we can, we can bring this uh, trend, we can reverse the trend. It has, it has to stop and then be reversed. So I'll, that's that's one on my to-do list because uh, thanks to your both contributing today. So are there, what would be the proper level of clamoring to get people's attention? What what do you want to see the reactions being? And did Davos, anybody at Davos bring up this trend? Um, well, I for one would like to see more clamoring. <laughs> I do not think it was discussed at Davos. Uh, I think well, it would have been nice be though, wouldn't it? Yes, yes. And, you know, the, the developed countries historically have done the most polluting. We emitted the greenhouse gases that have largely caused this problem. But, um, you know, other countries like India and China have come up and China is now the number one emitter of CO2, not the U.S. anymore. And so the solution, you know, really has to involve particularly those two big countries. And right now they're both dragging their feet a little. They're not making the commitments to get to neutrality by 2050 that the United States has made and many European countries. They're looking at longer timescales that will, will frankly be too late. So we need those two countries in particular to stand up and, and lead on this issue. But mainly, even more importantly, I think we need the U.S. to stand up on the lead on this issue. Because very little gets done on the world stage without U.S. leadership and strongly pushing for it. And we haven't had that for a while, but we have that now in the Biden administration. And I hope we can, can move forward from here. So administrations matter. You're saying to anybody who's wondering about whether they need to be participating in the, the election. Yes. <laughs> Boy, <Right>. do they. <laughs> okay. The previous administration was actually doing things to speed up global warming perversely. So it makes a big difference particularly for climate change.
So that's it. We just—you've just made a, a substantive point about elections outcomes do really, really matter. So nobody gets to sit out any anymore that are eligible to participate in elections. So mm -hmm. proof positive. Well, did you either of you want to close with any particular unattended points today while we're together? Well, I guess I would just close with the idea that it's it's not too late for us to turn the corner. We need to be working on it right now, and we need to work hard and push hard in that direction. And it really, at this point, it really comes down to governments leading in that direction. It's great what the individuals can do to you know reduce their own carbon footprint, but it has to be at the national stage now. We have to have strong incentives to move off of fossil fuels. But it can be done, you know, with two decades, there's little that humanity cannot do in two decades if we have the political will. So we can get there and we can avoid the worst consequences of global warming, but we need to, we have to start now. <laughs> and Yi? Uh, yeah, I, I think the ocean circulation changes need more attention. How there are not enough attention from the government, also from maybe from the public on the circulation changes. Because they cause lots of not only the one that we are focusing on, but it cause lots of positive climate feedbacks, which can uh, worsen the climate warming. So I think people should focus more. Studies should focus more on the circulation changes to better understand the potential of the climate warming and also about the global carbon cycle. Yes. So I know that the positive climate feedback. Keith used that expression, and you too, Yi. And I'm just wondering if part of the essential messaging is to change that title to pernicious or <laughs> a concerning or a dangerous positive that climate feedback, that kind of thing. Just, just to tweak that a little bit so we don't see positive as something we can live with. I think that's a really good point. When I hear positive feedback, I think pernicious feedback. So I think you're right as far as what the actual meaning is. For the it's, mainstream it messaging. It makes the climate warming worse. Yes, yes. Well, I want to thank you both for your time and for your important work. It's really, really essential for all of us. I'm glad you've given me an opportunity to help raise this up for all people's awareness. Well, thanks so much for having us. Thank you. My guests were UCI Earth System Science researcher Yi Liu and oceanographer at UCI Professor Keith Moore on their new findings about the global circulation of ocean waters. Contributing researchers include UCI's Francois Primo and Xiamen University Weilei Wang. We'll be right back with my next guests, Tina Rivers-Ryan and Paul Vanu's co-curators of the brand new installation at UCI's Beale Center, Difference Machines, Technology and Identity in Contemporary Art. Welcome back to the show. My guests in this segment are Tina Rivers-Ryan and Paul Van Oos, co-curators of the brand new installation at UC Irvine's Beale Center entitled Difference Machines, Technology and Identity in Contemporary Art. 
trying to put this lovely space on the map for locals and patrons well beyond. This is such a gem celebrating now with the 20 year anniversary here at UC Irvine. To introduce my co-curator guest, Tina Rivers Ryan is currently a curator with the Buffalo AKG Art Museum, formerly known as the Albright Knox Art Gallery. Before joining the AKG, she was a curatorial research assistant in the Department of Modern and Contemporary Art at the Metropolitan Museum of Art New York. Her expertise is in the field of media art, including video, digital, and internet art. Her exhibitions at the AKG include, with Paul Venus, the 2021's Difference Machines, Technology, and Identity Contemporary Art, which received a 2022 award for excellence from the Association of Art Museum Curators and 2020's Peer to Peer, which was named to Hyperallergic's list of the top 50 exhibitions of 2020. Her next major exhibition, Electric Op, will open at the AKG in the fall of 2024. Outside the museum, she regularly writes for Art Forum and other magazines, as well as for exhibition catalogs for museums like DIA and the Walker Art Center. Her current research projects address the Web3 rhetoric of decentralization, for which she received the prestigious Arts Writers Grant from the Andy Warhol Foundation and the relationship between technology and the body informed by her experience of disability. She completed several degrees in art history, including a Bachelor's of Arts from Harvard and PhD from Columbia. My other guest is co-curator of this exhibit, Paul Venus. Paul is a professor of art and founding director of Coles Center for Biological Art at the University of Buffalo. A renowned media artist, his honors include 2006 Creative Capital Grant and the 2019 Golden Nika at Pre-Arts Electronica. Since the 1990s, his projects have highlighted the social consequences of new technologies. His most recent works include genetic experiments that examine his own Jamaican-American parentage to undermine scientific constructions of race. Paul completed his Bachelor's of Fine Arts at the University of Buffalo and his Master's of Fine Arts at Carnegie Mellon University. Paul and Tina come to us today from Buffalo after breathlessly returning from the Beale Center opening last Saturday. Welcome to both of you to Ask a Leader. Thank you so much, Claudia, for having us. Yeah, thanks. Nice to be back. Yeah, thank you. And congratulations on putting together, presenting to us at the Beale Center Difference Machines Technology and Identity in Contemporary Art, a multi-layered dialogue a veritable retrospective to current works exhibited at 17 international artists, the earliest work being really big deals in the art tech intersection world. It's complicated, it's demanding, and that's the point. So while people listen to my guest speaking, it's best that you think about lining up your visit here between now and April 29th, where it is installed, the intersectionality of this exhibition is kind of like a five corner streets, a lot of traffic and directions in time and space. So I just want everybody's permission, including my esteemed guest, my resorting to some shorthand, I just mean no disrespect. It's intentional in the service of nudging community members to drop in and see for yourselves this. So could you talk about it's art presenting how 
technology shapes and you can put where the emphasis is for you. It, it sorts identity, it sorts race, it sorts gender and even commerce. So perhaps you could sort of put the weight of which of those elements that you're factoring, you're considering in this really important exhibition. That's a great question. There is a wonderful uh, description in today's Washington Post. There's a new uh, article. It's dramatically titled that Biden might lower the amount of percentage of white people in America. So it's got this very dramatic title. But really, it's an article about changing categories in the census. And the census has always been such a huge issue for how we think of our differences and what differences mean, if they're biological, if they're social, what they mean in terms of having political voice and uh, agency. And I love this sentence that they use. They say, federal race and ethnicity standards are inherently complex because they seek to capture dynamic and fluid socio-political constructs. I really like this idea of the dynamic and fluid socio-political constructs because that's very much what we're also examining in this exhibition. You know, these socio-political constructs, we're looking at these differences, we're looking at the ways in which these machines of difference, these ways in which not only computers and algorithms, but also how laws and other sort of systematic processes create reify, affirm, as well as undermine differences and, and how various artists have sought to both uh, sort of draw attention to those differences and also question these differences. And, and that's what the exhibition is, is looking at too. And it's looking at it very much in the context of this, like of technologies and, and that technologies of, if we think about the words of like someone like Stuart Hall, technologies, especially biometric technologies, facial recognition, et cetera, have always been kind of tested out, you know, in the colonies and on, um, you know, sort of more away from, you might say, the first world even, and then kind of, I guess, domesticated in ways in which we don't really even sometimes understand the full politics of, of their creation. So these are the kind of questions that we're looking at. <laughs> Sorry for the long answer. No, that's to give tee up what people are in for when they enter that veal space, that maroon cube. Tina, I know you have very specific, distinct sort of uh, a response to that sort of global question I put out there. Yeah, to, just to piggyback on what Paul was saying, I mean, he already gestured um, to this in his answer that as a society, we um, are all marked by difference, right? Differences in, in particularly in our bodies that, you know, uh, how we present ourselves to the world um, in terms of race, gender, um, ability, uh, also sexuality, nationality. And the, one of the things that is now shaping how these identities manifest is actually digital technology. So to sort of make that concrete, if you go onto a social media platform like Instagram, you can use a hashtag like Black Lives Matter or Trans Day of Visibility in order to make a post that signals that you identify as part of a community or that you at least want to promote the, vis the visibility of a community. And so at this point, you know, especially as we all get so accustomed to leading online digital lives, we are posting our selfies, we're posting photos of ourselves to the internet. We are sharing our social networks on the internet. We're letting corporations like Facebook know who our family members are and who we went to college with. 
We are sharing our innermost private thoughts. We're leaving digital traces of where we go um, when we, you know, tag in at a restaurant or at a movie theater. And so what we're helping build are giant corporate and government databases that essentially um, are, are digital doubles, right? That we all have these kind of data avatars that exist out there now that create a picture of who we are, including, you know, these kinds of social markers of difference. So it's about how we manifest our, our identity in the world, but also how our identity is manifest online. And so the exhibition really wants to invite people to consider, well, what is happening now to identity? And, you know, or what are the ways that we can use these technologies in really productive ways? Or as Paul said, you know, how might we actually resist some of the more harmful ways that these digital technologies are surveying our identities or, or tracking them or even shaping them? So um, it's really important as we have this larger conversation about the role of digital technology in our lives to understand that artists have always had a lot to say about this, um, that artists have been experimenting with computers since the 1960s. Um, so digital art is not new. In fact, it's half a century old. And that especially since the 1990s, there have been a lot of artists who have been pushing back about this idea that was very utopian um, in the 1990s that you know, oh, cyberspace, the internet, now we say the metaverse are places where we leave our identities behind, right? That you can just like hop online and, you know, the, the famous New Yorker cartoon, like nobody knows you're a dog, that you go online and you can be anybody you want. And, but since the 1990s, there are a lot of artists using digital tools, using computers, using websites, you know, making software programs, et cetera, who have really questioned this idea and said, well, what if that's not the case, right? What if, in fact, we bring our identities with us? And in what ways might that be really good and exciting? And I'm thinking in particular of the artist Skawanati, who's one of the artists in the show, um, who's an Indigenous Canadian artist um, based in Montreal, who actually back you know, in the, the late 90s and early 2000s was making spaces for Indigenous artists in virtual worlds like Second Life. Right. So that's a sort of a positive example of bringing your identity online and basically saying, well, our lands were colonized, but now we indigenous people can colonize cyberspace and we can create a space for ourselves on the Internet. Um, and so she started the thing called Cyber Pow Wow and also founded Abtec, which stands for Aboriginal Territories um, in Cyberspace. And so that's a sort of a positive example of how we might bring our identities online um, rather than just sort of erase them or leave them behind. But then there's also this question of how are these, um, you know, especially with social media now, like how are our identities sort of being tracked in really nefarious ways? So facial recognition technology is one that is increasingly coming under scrutiny and actually has been banned in a number of places. The show also has other examples, though, of works of art that are a little more skeptical about technology or that explore the way that these technologies can be used not by communities, but against communities. Um, and one of those I'm thinking of is Zach Blass, who is a queer artist who has done a lot of work with facial recognition technology. And the work in the show is about the way that facial recognition technology, that the people who are developing it have put forward these ideas that we can use facial recognition not only to identify individuals in a crowd, for example, but actually to categorize people according to identity, 
And so there have even been papers that have been published asserting that certain researchers claim they can use facial recognition technology to identify which men are gay. And so this is incredibly controversial and, and problematic because it basically relies on, you know, ideas going back to, you know, 19th century phrenology and you know, all the way up through the Holocaust that you can tell somebody's identity or sexual orientation just by looking at them. And so Zach Glass's whole project is really about connecting the dots and helping us understand how some of these ideas about facial recognition and the way that facial recognition is being marketed and promoted you know, rely on these really, you know, problematic ideas about the relationship between our bodies and our identities. One of the things that, I mean, there's a lot of artists, you know, working and sort of working against uh, surveillance technologies, but there's a really interesting little quote from one of the artists in the show, Raphael Azana Hammer, when he was asked, you know, is it okay for artists to be using facial recognition technologies and machine vision? I mean, isn't this such a problematic technology? And Raphael said, in fact, artists should probably be the only ones allowed <laughs> to use this technology. Yeah, he said facial recognition should be illegal except for artists. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, thank you. For those of you who just joined us, my guests are Tina Rivers-Ryan, curator at Buffalo AKG Art Museum, formerly known as the Albright Knox Art Gallery, and Paul Venus, artist and professor of art and founding director of the Coalesce Center for Biological Art at the University of Buffalo. They're co-curators of the exhibit currently running at UCI's Beale Center, the exhibition called Difference Machines. Technology and Identity in Contemporary Art. And it's now open through April 29th. And again, advising everybody, you can tell by how the co-curators are speaking to this exhibit, the expansive themes that ample time is advised and ample numbers of visits fully advised as well. So, and I really appreciate how you're threading so many themes together so we can talk about this efficiency and the subversity of how tech racializes data versus, you know, the analog sorts of approaches. So you've already talked about that and you give all the patrons coming a user guide and in there you describe algorithms. And I just want to just expand. I mean, I think, and Tina sort of already expanded what the broader construct of algorithm is. And I think we, all the patrons bring to this exhibit the algorithms of the history that we've been taught. So I think, are you conscious of all of that besides the algorithms that are in the more recent code being written? I mean, yes, I mean, we think of algorithms, I mean, not, not only as things that, that occur on computer, but things that uh, operate in the culture at large. Some writers like uh, Wendy Chung, for instance, has seen race as a technology and racializing as an algorithm because the incredible kind of, you know, if we look at the effect that creations such as race and, and algorithms and systems based around ideas of race. If you think about the incredible way in which they've transformed the colonial economies, they are perhaps the kind of most dramatic machines of the post-Renaissance era. So we're looking at algorithms in an expansive way and in a way which is sometimes um, extremely playful um, and, and sometimes incredibly dark. Where the, the whole the title of the show, Difference Machines, is riffing off um, Charles Babbage's, uh, you know, the, the 1820s English inventor's difference engine, which has been, been considered the, the first computer 
even though it was originally an analog device. Uh, and we riff off that partially to kind of also to historicize the machine. So, so this is not simply a kind of comment on sort of the last 15 minutes. This is a conversation on, on the sort, sort of this whole kind of, you can see it as an enlightenment project or, or post-Renaissance project of kind of defining and creating these kind of social algorithms. Charles Babbage's uh, difference engine was more like, you might say, more like a, a calculator in, in a sense, but we're thinking of difference machines. Again, we, cha we changed that title directly to kind of make that notion of the machine much broader, uh, encompassing computers, but also encompassing systems and encompassing algorithms in general. So that's, that's, I guess, the kind of what we hope the title also evokes or somehow um, encompasses. I think understanding the, the history of the intertwining of computation and, and identity is really, really important. To go back to Paul's comment earlier about the census and how the census you know, is one of the main engines for tracking difference, we might say, uh, one of the main machines for tracking difference. Actually, if you look at the history of computers, in part, computers were developed, like one of the first use cases for computer technology was to maintain tables of data for life insurance companies and for the U.S. Census Bureau. So actually, along with sort of like the military uses of computers. So World War II is often cited as a major sort of impetus for the development of digital computers. But let's say the first databases, like the first really large scale databases and the first application of computers for you know filing away and creating what we now think of as like big data was really for life insurance and for the Census Bureau. So what I'm trying to say is that computers from the very beginning have not only been killing machines in the sense of military technology, they've also been machines for tracking people and for identifying categories of difference and filing people away in this way into their respective sort of identities. And as Paul said, there's been a lot of recent scholarship that I think has done a lot of work to really push forward this idea that technology is not neutral. This is one of the common sort of refrains because there is this idea that we associate <laughs> with not only 1990s, you know, cyber techno utopianism, but even today, there's a lot of people who think that technology is neutral, that code is neutral, that there is a kind of objectivity to the way that computers work. And, you know, this exhibition really focuses on how computers can be applied in ways that are actually really political. But there is, is scholarship that has pointed out that even the way that computers are built is political. You know, one example of this that, you know, can be quite concrete is that coding languages rely on English, right? So they are already not neutral in the sense that they already are tied to very specific cultural frameworks, they already sort of assume that, you know, English is or should be the dominant language. Um, another example of this is that for a long time, computer technology used the term master and slave to describe different hard drives, for example, um, that, you know, one would be the master and then you would copy uh, information over to the slave. And so there's actually been a recent push led by professional associations of people who work in computers to revisit that language and to understand how even the practice of computer science, right, is relying on these ideas that are very much about difference, creating. Computer science at Carnegie Mellon in the early 90s.
And she said, you know, I, I was having a tough time figuring out how to um, end the program that I was working on. I was just learning, I think she was talking about Unix or a programming language in, in the Unix environment. And she said, I couldn't figure out how to get out of the program. And she said, you know, it, it took me, you know, quite a while in being told that, oh, in fact, the command to get out is kill, <laughs> which was very much a kind of a, really shows the, the, the military beginnings of, of that whole Unix environment. The law school is so intentional and great seminars. And they, or maybe it's some other kinds of sessions that even pre-computer, but highly computational methods were used in slave sort of uh, accounting. So, it, I mean, it goes back for centuries. So I don't know if that's something you, you two talk about it on some level, but do you consider that already? Because Tina was going about to insurance companies. Very sophisticated accounting system was that it anticipated computers. Yes, yeah. absolutely. That they were, I mean, you know, Paul has said that, I mean, he, he invoked earlier the concept of the enlightenment. So really, you know, the development of the enlightenment in 17th century Europe, you know, was very much part and parcel with the colonial project, with the expansion of empire around the world by Western Europe. And of course, that you know, is completely dependent upon the slave trade and um, the development of plantation-based economies. And so all of that project in the Enlightenment and colonialism required the development, basically, of enormous uh, systems of record keeping um, to manage empire, that there is no empire without databases, basically. And we also write in our essay for the show about the concept of the encyclopedia, that, you know, the, the concept of the encyclopedia is usually held forth as a, a sort of paragon of Enlightenment thinking. But the will to sort of classify the world, to sort of write it all down, it, it, again, historically, it is, it is part of this same moment, right? Where part of what you're classifying and writing down is also the knowledge that you're acquiring about other cultures and other places and, you know, flora and fauna. And part of that is, you know, because you are putting people on ships and sailing them around the world with guns and germs. Um, and you're going to exploit natural resources and human resources. And so... Um, you know, human capital. So yeah, it's all sort of part of the same the same thing. That's super well put. I, I, was, I was going to add one little sidebar onto that. If we think about the, some of the predecessors of vision technologies to visually recognize, I mean, think about the kind of uh, the birth of things like fingerprinting. Fingerprinting was born in the 1870s, basically, in colonial India, because the British colonial officers couldn't really recognize any of the, their subjects, right? Um, and so a lot of these technologies of, of recognition and, and biometric technologies to keep track of people really come out of that era, that these technologies that they could have been invented a long time before, except there's no need because people lived in, you know, lived in smaller areas and they weren't necessarily you know, colonizing out so much. But, but a lot of these technologies, like fingerprinting, were, came out of, out of that colonial context and they were brought back into England by none other than the father of eugenics, Francis Galton. So biometrics and eugenics, keeping track they all kind of find the sort of similar kind of connection places in the colonial and the race project. One of the markers of a great work of art is that it doesn't, you don't fully exhaust it on first viewing, right? Um, and so I just want to underscore that, you know, these works are all very 
sort of heady, you know, works that have a lot to say about technology, but they're also artworks that open up to a lot of different ideas and interpretations. And we usually, when we think about digital art or look at digital art in the world of contemporary art, at least, we tend to fixate on the technology and how the artists are using the technology, but we kind of forget that it's also art. It's also artworks and you can have an aesthetic experience. And so that was something that was a really important thing for Paul and I in curating the show as well, right? Is to really make sure that there were a variety of experiences, a variety of emotional tones. Some of the works are sad. Some of the works are angry. Some of the works are sort of like um, just very fluid and pleasurable and beautiful. Like there's, you know, the, the full variety of art is on display here. Um, and the digital art is not just limited to one mode or one, you know, um, one conversation. You know, Lod, both of you, the, uh, another art form is how you've curated all of these 17 collectives and individuals artwork inside the Beale Center, which, as you alluded to, is much smaller than the Buffalo venue. And so kudos to you for this meeting the challenge of putting it in a remarkable sort of mini gallery, major open gallery presentation here, installation of this. So congratulations on doing all of that. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and and um, and to meet you at the opening also. And um, I guess Tina's going to be back and to give a curious talk in a couple of weeks. So um, I will be back in town on February 17th. Friday, February 17th at 11 a.m. I will be giving a curator's tour. And unfortunately, Paul is not able to join me, but I will be channeling him, doing my very best, uh, and, and giving a walkthrough of the exhibition and, and focusing more closely on the works. Um, so yeah, so if anybody is interested in coming and seeing the show, that's as good a time as any. I'll be there and I'll be very happy to answer questions and to you know speak about some of our favorite works. So yeah, please, please, please come join and say hi. Absolutely. Thank you for your time, Tina and Paul. You've challenged me and I hope others who are going to grace the Beale Center this winter and this spring quarters. My guests were Tina Rivers-Ryan, curator and co-curator Paul Venus at the Beale Center, Difference, Machines, Technology and Identity in Contemporary Art running through April 29th. Thanks so much, both of you. You're welcome. Thank you. An additional segment of this interview is available on askaleader.com. Next week will be Young Suk Kim. She's professor at UCI's School of Education to talk about the science of reading. We're going to take a whole hour to do that. There's so much to say. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Mm-hmm.